I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Oh, I need my microphone. I would still encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, we are not going to be actually looking at Ephesians 4. Uh, we are going to be looking at Ephesians 3, 17 through 21, finishing up this section uh, that I began but determined I would not have the, uh, the physical power to complete. If I were to do it all in one hop, I probably would have collapsed at some point, and that would have been embarrassing. So, um, In any event, we're going to be taking a look now at, uh, at an, an abstract concept, but one that's tremendously important uh, to the Christian, something that Paul is addressing. He feels free to speak of it, and that is something that lies within the Christian heart, and we'll discuss what that is in just a moment. But before we do, let's go to the Lord and let's ask for his help. Well, Sovereign Lord, sometimes there are things in the Bible that are very straightforward. There are narratives, uh, parables, uh, even parables that uh, seem on the surface confusing that are nonetheless opened up by Christ. But there are occasionally teachings that we simply don't comprehend because we have no experience of them. So I pray, Lord, this day that you would help me to explain that which must be felt, Lord, to those who uh, are about to hear. And I pray, Lord, that we would not grow frustrated, but that we would strive to have that which Paul is speaking of. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would enlarge our love for Christ, that we would uh, love him and serve him and desire to know him better every single day. Now, Lord, help me to talk about this, this uh, tremendous subject of the love of Christ, which is really beyond my ability to summarize and to explain to your people. But may you make it apparent to them. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 17 through 21. <clears throat> that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is sometimes the case that the most important things in a relationship are not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. They're there, but they're not necessarily apparent. There's a great illustration of that uh, in the movie The Princess Bride, which, as you know, begins with Wesley, farm boy, and uh, Buttercup, the, uh, the farm owner's daughter. Uh, and there's this uh, you know, interplay between them. Farm boy, fetch that, uh, that picture, and he always answers, as you wish. And then, of course, we're told that day she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he uh, meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Now, that undoubtedly was the most important part of their relationship, not their working relationship on the farm, obviously. Something that uh, is imperceptible, that uh, existed within their two hearts, a feeling for one another. But uh, there are some who can look at that and say, bleh, 
I, I have no interest. I don't un even understand what they're talking about. Uh, as you know, within the movie, the grandfather is reading this book to a young boy who is sick. And when they get that point, uh, get to that point, the young boy says, what is this? You're trying to trick me. Where's the sports? This is this a kissing book? And, uh, you know, the, the grandfather says, keep your shirt on. And he continues through. And then they get to that point where it seems that Wesley has been killed by pirates. And uh, the boy's response is, murder by pirates is good. You know, that's, uh, he had no interest whatsoever in the love side of the relationship. But partly that's because he's a, he's a kid. He didn't understand it. It was of no great import to him. The idea that this is the, the central relationship, the most important thing about the book, and all the humor and the encounters and so on, and the sword fights and so on, they were just kind of interplay around that, you know, the, the window dressing and the great romance between Wesley and Buttercup uh, is something that's intangible. Uh, similarly, there is here in Paul's prayer something that is in, intangible, particularly to the unbeliever. Or even, and this is hard, and this is going to be a hard sermon in some senses, or even to the person who professes to believe, okay, they have historical faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that he was a man. They believe he came to earth. They believe he's the son of God. They believe he died on the cross. But they've never actually closed with him. They have no relationship, so to speak, of. They know things about him, but they don't really know him. Not, not in any real sense. They, they wouldn't understand really what is meant when the psalmist says regarding the Lord, when he, he cries out in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, I can, I can perceive that by his blessings, the Lord is good to his people. But what do you mean taste? This is, you know, the, the, the Lord is not like candy, is he? I mean, I can't, can't understand what you're talking about. The Lord is spirit. But there is an experimental aspect, brothers and sisters, to our faith that is absolutely vital, a felt aspect, something that is, uh, must occur within the heart. Otherwise, our faith, our faith rather, is missing a vital component. Elder Brunson spoke of this when he was talking about the three components historically that have been held to be part of faith. There's the knowledge aspect, that we know certain things to be true, that we assent to them. That's the assent aspect. Yes, I agree, Jesus is this person, that he did these things. But then there's that aspect which in Latin is called fiducia. Loving trust. It's more than just a, a trust. Well, I trust my lawyer, that kind of thing. But rather, it's a, it's a loving trust. One puts one's entire self into the hands of this person. You love them and you completely surrender to them and their will. That's the, 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 the aspect of the Christian faith that is so important but so difficult to explain to the unbeliever, to the person on the outside. Because, you know, you can, you can talk to them about the, the historical aspects of the faith. But talking to them about the way that the, the gospel should impact you, that is that's something harder to explain. Well, in verse 17, when Paul is speaking to uh, those who are reading this in Ephesus, he's, remember this, he's writing to the Ephesian church. So he's writing to people whom he presumes are regenerate. People who have already closed with the Lord Jesus Christ. People who have the, the love of Christ dwelling within them because Christ is dwelling within them. He prayed that they might be strengthened in the inner man. 
that the way that they knew Christ, the way that they loved Christ, that that would grow, that the, uh, but I mean, we need to step back and stop for a moment and think about this statement that, that Paul is making, that the omnipresent, that the infinite God who's created the universe is dwelling within them, that Christ is present within each and every believer. That is something that should uh, uh, amaze us. We know that God is said to dwell in heaven, uh, but he also dwells amongst his people. And not just, you know, physically present in the area. We know that the, the word tells us that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. But more importantly, he is in them. He is dwelling within their hearts. Now, when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's not talking about an organ that's pumping blood. Okay, It's not talking about the, the physical heart. It's talking about the essence of a man. It's talking about the, the very soul of the man. And it doesn't divide. We do this as Christians often, but the Bible doesn't. And this is very important. The people will divide heart and head, intellect and feelings. Okay, The Bible doesn't. The Hebrew Bible keeps them together. It says a man is made up of what he thinks and what he feels and that they go together intimately. His will, your will, brothers and sisters, is, in, uh, is affected intimately by your emotions. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you can know that something is wrong intellectually and that it'll probably have bad effects. But if you love it, you're still going to want it and do it. Your emotions, your volition affects your decision. It's not the case that we're all thinking machines who make decisions based upon the, the chances of success are very good in this case, and I think I should do it. You don't do that. What you do is you, you weigh up these things. Do you want them? And sometimes you will want things that are bad for you, and you will pursue them knowing that the cost will probably be bad in some sense. Or you will see something that's good for you, know that it's good for you, but say, uh, <laughs> I want to do that. I hate Brussels sprouts. Anyway, that, that kind of, you know, it, it's something where you can, you can weigh all the, uh, the certain food kinds, uh, types of food, where you could weigh all the nutrients and the, the various advantages, and you're like, I still like candy better. So that's what I'm going to eat, okay? Thank you. Um, in the same way, it's vital to remember that our feelings, and not merely our intellect, are what cause us to close with Christ, to know him. That's why it's a, a change of will that is so very important in our coming to Christ, our learning to, to love the things that we once hated, to turn away from the things that we once loved, and to find them to be, to be awful. But the thing, fact is, Paul is talking about Christ dwelling within you, having his spirit dwell within us through the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us through faith, then he says, Christ himself dwells in you. That should be a sobering idea, shouldn't it? That wherever we go, Christ is with us, not merely watching over us in an omnipresent sense, but is literally there with us. How should that affect our behavior? The way that we think about people, the way that we speak, for instance. Are we speaking Christ-like words? Speaking to them from the heart, which should be filled with Christ. And taste cardius. Uh, Christ is within our hearts, the hearts of his people. Uh, now, here we understand, obviously, that we have been given 
the presence of the Holy Spirit, and therefore Christ is with us, Christ dwells in us. And he says that this is something that can increase within us. What does that mean? Do we get more of Christ in our hearts or so on? Well, that means the relationship that we have to him and our ability to understand our growth in knowledge of him in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter puts it, can increase. In the same way that you know, we may love somebody, we may have that, that loving relationship that exists between husband and wife, but hopefully that relationship continues to grow. And we know that person better with each passing day than when we first met them. We understand their feelings. We understand their thoughts. You'll see a couple. Uh, Joy and I do it all the time, and I know it irritates some people, but we, we have what's called the shared brain principle. Uh, we'll, you know, finish each other's sentences or, you know, somebody will say something and we'll have exactly the same thought at exactly the same time and kind of just look at each other. We don't need to say anything out loud. We're like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. Now, did we have that originally? No, I, I just had goo-goo eyes. She was the best. You know, that was, there wasn't much thinking that was going on there. There wasn't much understanding and so on. But as time has, has gone on, I've grown to, to know her better, to appreciate her better, to understand her moods and so on. And it's made um, my, my relationship, hopefully, better there, stronger as well. So in one sense, we grow uh, in our in our knowledge and understanding because Christ is within us. And we understand the power of Christ is what facilitates this. It's him moving within us. He is the one who brought us from death to life and so on. And he is the one who is growing us in grace, allowing us to know him better, allowing him, us to enjoy him more, not just as our savior, it's funny, we were talking, um, the elders came, and I was very appreciative of it. Uh, they came to our house last night, and they were talking to, uh, to Isabel about, um, about salvation and the things of Christ and so on. Uh, and there was this, this idea of understanding, not just understanding, but knowing Christ, and that it's something that we shouldn't have to, to depend upon God entirely to, to do for us, but it's something that we should want. It's not like we should be walking down the road and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're hit with this, uh, this spirit-filled uh, lightning bolt from above and suddenly, oh, I didn't love Christ before, now I love Christ. But rather, it should be the case that we are pursuing Christ, that we are striving after him, that we're praying, that we're, we're asking the Lord to increase our faith or to give us in the, in the first place that gift of faith because we know it's something we need. You remember how in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is talking about and the great uh, thing that he uses as an analogy for the believer's relationship with Christ is, of course, the relationship between husband and wife. One of the things that he just says straight out is husbands love your wives. I mean, think about that. He says, husbands, love your wives. This is a command, all right? It's not, husbands, love your wives if your wives are lovable. It's not, husbands, love your wives from time to time, and then sometimes really despise them and don't get along. It's, husbands, love your wives. Why? Because that's our duty. It's something that we're commanded to do. In the same way, believe it or not, Christian, or non-Christian, you're commanded to love God. You remember what the Shema said? Here, O Israel, we're supposed to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, 
and might. That's a command too. You're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love God and we're also supposed to love our wives. We're supposed to love our fellow men. You remember that when Christ tells us how to respond to those who hate us and despitefully use us, he says, love your enemies. That's hard, isn't it? Very hard, impossible without the the working of the Holy Spirit within us. But it's something that we need to be praying for. But when we have Christ within us, then that is something that is more than just, uh, 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 it's more than just a knowledge. It's more than just something that uh, we tick on a box when somebody asks us, what's your religion? I love the way uh, that Calvin puts it. He says, in a word, faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ by which he dwells in us and we are filled with the divine spirit, a warm embrace of Christ. In a very real sense, this is the, the difference between admiring somebody from afar and marrying them. It should be the case that the Christian's relationship to Christ is so deep, it really is like marriage. And What is Paul therefore doing? He is praying for them that they will know Christ and know him better, that this will be strengthened. He assumes that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in their hearts. Therefore, they have the Holy Spirit dwelling with them. And he hopes that it will grow and grow. And what does he want them to have? He wants them to have through this knowledge of Christ dwelling within them, through this feeling of his love and their love to him, that they will have this absolute assurance of his love. That they will have an abiding, deep, not just thought, but conviction within their hearts that Christ will never leave them nor forsake them. That no matter what happens to them in the world, no matter how people abuse them, no matter how they are persecuted or ridiculed or so on, that Christ will never leave them. And that he will always be there for them if they're in the darkest, deepest dungeon or upon the highest height, if they feel absolutely forsaken by the entire world, their family and absolutely alone, that he is still there. That they will be like trees that have roots that are so deeply planted that even the strongest storm of life cannot knock them over. And it goes down and it drinks deep from the wells of Christ's love. And that is what sustains it. That is what should sustain you in your Christian faith. That constant reassurance, the constant means of grace, building up your relationship with Jesus, constantly filling you with his grace and knowing that there is a relationship there that is unbreakable. You are part of him. He is the head. You are the body. And so therefore, nothing will shake you. Now, you remember in the, in the Princess Bride, if you're familiar with the, uh, the story, and, you know, of course, Andrew ruins movies, um, Wesley gave Buttercup his assurance, hear this now, I will come for you. But then she hears that he's been murdered by pirates. And, well, Wesley, after all, was just a man. He's mortal. It might have been the case that he really was dead. I mean, we can say to, uh, it's a wonderful movie, and, you know, we we love the fact that he perseveres beyond, you know, it becomes ridiculous, the things that he's willing to do for this woman uh, out of his abiding love. This is true love. Do you think this happens every day, et cetera? And he, uh, you know, he he, uh, pursues her no matter what, overcomes every single obstacle. But in reality, unfortunately, a mortal man is just a mortal man. 
But what Paul wants them to know is that this is not a mortal man who loves us and who has said, I will come for you. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. If Christ were merely a man, if he were merely a teacher and a sage, he could do nothing of the things that we really need. In order for him to be our savior, our sustainer, and the one who will bring us home, he has to be God, and he has to be absolutely worthy of everything. So he's not praying that Christ would come and dwell in their hearts, because he assumes that Christ already dwells in their hearts. He is praying that they would be confirmed in his love, that they would understand the indwelling of Christ means that they are sealed, that all of his promises are yea and amen, that they are part of his body and they can never be estranged. They can never be cut off. It's praying for their assurance because he knows they need it because we live in a fallen world and he knew that they were going to be attacked for their faith. They were going to go through hardships and difficulties. They were going to wake up in the morning. Do you ever wake up in the morning and and wonder, am I really saved? Because there's some sort of cloud that's arisen between you and God. You realize, I haven't prayed to him in a while. I haven't heard his voice. I'm I'm not feeling it. You know what I mean? And yet, He continues to reassure us that he is there, that he is not silent, and that because of that faith that he's given to us, he will never leave us, no matter what happens. So we can always go to him. He says that our salvation is founded in the love of Christ and in his firmness and in his constancy And in the fact that Jesus, and this is something that you need to be able to understand, Jesus' love to you is not something that he did once on the cross. It is active and ongoing. If you are Christ, then Jesus loves you. Jesus is loving you. Jesus will always love you. This will never stop. And we see it in the ways that he's merciful to us, But sometimes we have to simply understand it's part of his promises. Sometimes we will undergo things. We're like, how could a loving God put me through this? Loss of a child, loss of a job, terrible sickness, things like that. And yet we have to remember, sometimes the Bible tells us whom the father loves, he chastens. Three-year-old, daddy, if you loved me, you would never spank me. No, son, it's actually because I love you that I spank you. That's what they don't they don't understand. Sometimes, you know, you get the seven-year-old and they still don't get it. But the father loves you so much that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never stop loving you. And therefore, he is praying for the inward strengthening of the spirit and that they would understand the love of Christ, this love which flows from us, from the faith that he's given to us. And he prays that they would be strengthened, therefore, in the inner man and become more and more rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Now, he runs out of words as he's talking about this love and how high it is and how deep it is and so on. Uh, It's deeper than the ocean, you know, to use that terrible uh, uh, country song and so on. But uh, it, it really is. It's... It's impossible for us to come up with human language that explains the love of Christ expressed to his people. He runs out of, out of verbs and adjectives. The, the love of Christ that passes knowledge. 
What does he mean? Well, this isn't something you can intellectually quantify. It's not something that you can, you can explain simply by the, the things that he did. I mean, there's, there's amazing things that he did. When we were yet rebels and enemies, he came to earth and he died on the cross for us. But yet his love is, is greater than just that explanation. This is, this is a love that is actually infinite. It extends into forever. It's beyond our, our ability to quantify. And it's... It's not just explained in his sufferings for us. It's not just explained in his intercession for us. It's explained in the fullness of the Godhead being willing to love us, to dwell within us, to sustain us, to, to do all of the things that we have done. But it's, it's entirely beyond our comprehension. We can apprehend the love. That is, we can know that it exists, but we can't comprehend it. We can't get to the depths of it. Uh, as Calvin said, this love of Christ, though it surpasses the power of our understanding to comprehend, is still a subject, though, of experimental knowledge. Now, what does he mean by that? It's something that, that we experience in our lives as Christians. We can know the love of Christ expressed to us. We can experience it in the way that, for instance, he brings us into the body of Christ, in the way that brothers and sisters in Christ pray for us. We can see it in the ways, for instance, that we're delivered from difficulties and so on. We're provided for so very richly and so on. These are things that we can, we can understand. We can see tokens of his love in all of these things. And experimentally, we can apprehend, we can feel the love of Christ, but it's not this kind of squidgy-widgy feelings that are stirred up uh, in a worship event. We're all like this. You know, that's not the love of Christ, brothers and sisters. That's, I shouldn't have done that. Now my head's like, (laughs) foolish boy. But there are so many things that we can try to replace the love of Christ with, which are just our own subjective feelings. I'll talk about some of them in the end, but this is, this is far deeper. This is the pleroma. This is the full si- significance of God loving us. The fullness of God, uh, Chrysostom said, uh, the, the fullness of God is that excellence, says Chrysostom, of which God himself is full. Be ye perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. He loves us with this this fullness of God, which surpasses our knowledge. Uh, One of the things we need to remember, therefore, is that this is obviously an application of all that he's saying, is we don't reason our way to God. You don't talk people into the faith. There is something that is incomprehensible, as I said, when it comes to explaining Christ to people. That's one of the reasons why it's not a bad thing, actually, to talk about your testimony when you're speaking of Christ. Now, you need to talk about the objective things that Jesus did. You do need to talk about him as the Savior of sinners, the Son of God. You need to talk about uh, the person's need of Christ, the fact that they are uh, fallen in the first Adam, that they're on their way to hell. You need to actually play these things out. But you do also need to tell them about how it was that God effected salvation in your life to show an example of the love of God manifest in the midst of the world. This is a wisdom Paul therefore speaks of that exceeds knowledge. uh, The faculties of man just can't reach it. Our unaided wisdom is not able to do it. Uh, The prayer of Paul therefore is that that God would, would gradually open up them to understand it within their soul, to to feel it, to uh, to acquire it. 
but not in a way by which we normally understand things and we grow in our knowledge of them. You grow in your knowledge of, of say, mathematics by, by learning step-by-step step new equations, new ways of working things out. That's not the way Christians grow, though. We grow definitely through the means of grace that is appointed. We read his word, we pray to him, and so on. But there's an imperceptible way in which God, through the means of grace, grows our knowledge of him, grows our love. And all of these things come together. The communion of the saints, uh, the, the way that um, in corporate worship we, we draw near to the throne of grace. How in, uh, sometimes in prayer, uh, a light surprises, as the word, uh, as the hymnist put it. We uh, have this moment where we're, we're given an insight greater than we had. I, one of the things that amazes me is the way that I can go over a section of scripture that I've read maybe 30, 40 times and yet still find something new. You know, it's because God has, you know, enlightened me inwardly. I didn't work my way towards this. I didn't reason it out. I suddenly, holy mackerel, why didn't I see that? So that is something that he is praying for that would happen in their lives that the infinite power of God would be manifest to them and the result would be just this overweening love within them towards him and that they would understand that the love that they have towards him is as nothing compared to the love that he has towards them, which was original. So let me make some uh, applications of this. And uh, this is going to be a hard one, I understand, but uh, there you go. Sorry. Not sorry, actually. Um, the, uh, the, the first is this. I, I sometimes think uh, when I'm preaching... In the church, I'm preaching to two groups. There's those who, when you talk about the love of Christ, they, they begin to tear up. You know, they, they understand it experimentally. I have experienced the love of Christ. It's more than I can, I can explain to you. It's something that moves me so deeply at the bottom of my very being. And then there's the other group who roll their eyes when you talk about the love of Christ. So they're like the kid in The Princess Bride. Is this a kissing book? What, what, what are you talking about here? The law of Christ? I, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. I, I want you to give me something that I can understand, something that I can, uh, I can get my, my hands around. I, I, want, uh, I want concepts. I want, um, I want stories. Uh, I want information. I want data and so on. It's very, uh, <laughs> it's very unemotional. It's very... Uh, it's not even subjective, it's objective. But what's going on there? Well, we need to remember that within the church, and the, the Westminster Confession tells us about this, there are two different, two different distinctions that are being made. I would invite you once again to open up your Trinity Psalter hymnal to the back as we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there's a distinction that's made here. Bum, 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 bum. Where are you? No, 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 no. Ah, chapter 25. Um, it's on page 935 in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. And I just want to read to you one and two here. And I want you to see the distinction between invisible and visible. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The invisible church, therefore, is made up of those who are elected and those who will, in the fullness of time, be called to Christ, effectually called, indwelt by his spirit. 
These are what we might call spirit-filled believers, people who know the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says there's a larger group here. The visible church, this is section two, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as uh, before under the law, consists of all those who throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So within the world, okay, we have... A visible church. This is just one part of the visible church. This church here, Providence ARP. And we know that there are people who are here who profess the true faith along with their children. Okay? Now, within this body, there are the elect. Those who, are, who have been called by God, who were chosen by him before the very foundations of the earth and whom he then sent his son into the world to redeem, and whom he is applying his salvation to them, first effectually calling them by the word uh, into that, that living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, regenerating them, giving them those new hearts, and then growing them through sanctification in grace. But note this presumes that there will be people within the visible church who are not part of the invisible church, who are within the body of Christ, the covenant community, but who are not actually called by Christ. Now, we can tell that because they have a mark on the back of their neck. And there's an eye for the people who are members of the invisible church, and it's, it's easy to... No, the, the problem is you can't do that. So, what do we do? And this is, this is something that, you know, when somebody comes to join our church, what are we trying to ascertain? We're trying to ascertain, is this person truly converted? We don't just want to know that they can give the answers correctly. I have met many a fiend, and I'm not kidding here, who is able to explain Christian theology, but has none of the love of Christ dwelling within them and will misuse every, every part of the Christian faith if they can. What we're trying to find out is, is this person Christ indwelt? Is this person someone who is closed with the Holy Spirit? Is this person someone who is saved? Now, when they come in as a family, obviously we don't require that the, that the children be saved immediately. We, we take in non-communing children as well. We baptize infants because they're part of the covenant community, but we're looking forward to that day when, God willing, they will close with Christ by faith. Now, there are tons of people, unfortunately, who join the, the visible church, not because they love Christ, not because they're truly part of his body, but there's some aspect of Christianity that they like. There's something derivative that appeals to them. Uh, for men, it's often things like social order, male headship. In, in our completely confused and mixed up world, there's a lot of guys who really like the emphasis, for instance, on family order, sphere sovereignty, uh, Vantillianism, things like that. Christian nationalism is a hot button issue at this, uh, at this point in time. A lot of guys are discussing that. Or Calvinism and the sovereignty of God. I have met men who, and I'm not kidding, who were simultaneously conducting affairs, but also arguing strenuously on the internet for the sovereignty of God. I mean, can you even imagine that? This is a man who's betraying his wife and his family, but at the same time, what's his hobby? What's the thing that gives him delight? Arguing for the sovereignty of God, which he is dismissing by his very actions. There's a lot of guys who are like that. Now, I try to be an equal opportunity offender, so let me pile on the female side here as well. It's not just the guys who do this. There are many women who are attracted to Christianity because of the fellowship aspect. 
they desire to have those, those strong bonds, to have the family bonds, to have the, the, their kids playing with other kids who have a good foundation, things like that. Uh, they, they like the charity aspect, the, the love that's shown to other people through giving them what they have need of, or the, the social gospel aspect sometimes. I, we've had people who you know, have even been through this church whose primary emphasis is on you know, helping the poor and the needy and the so on. And, and really, there's, you look at it and you're like, I can't see a big difference between what you, you want in socialism, but you know, in any event, that kind of thing. Then there's the people who are really into the motherhood and the full quiver movement and, and things like that. They find the, the entire expression of their, their lives in being mothers and having kids. Now, that's not a bad thing, not at all. But Muslims can do that. Let's face it. Without the relationship to Christ, having a bunch of kids, well, it doesn't get you into heaven, unfortunately. And then there's the, oh my word, the, uh, the amorphous kind of lovey-dovey evangelifish feeling my way through the Christian faith that many women uh, are drawn to. I've never seen a better example of that, and I'm going to use names here, than, than Anne Voskamp. And I mean, she just produces word salad for Christians uh, about feelings and, and stuff like that. I'll give you, I just picked one at random. Um, uh, one night after I kissed kids' foreheads goodnight and they've all burrowed under blankets and I turn out the lights, what's deep into the dark places of my mind, what I think he thinks on replay in all the ways, I am too much, I am too much, I am too much, I am not enough, I am not enough, not enough, somehow who I am will have to disappear. This is the way of how many women feeling like you're not enough can be just one way of saying you feel like you're too much. You're never too much to be loved and you're always more than enough to be loved. Why can't he want more of me instead of less of me? Why can't I be more for him, more of what he needs? Why doesn't he cup my face and whisper, you're never too much to be loved and you're always more than enough to be loved and I look at this and I'm like holy mackerel <laughs> this is just word salad love blah language it has no basis in faith but there are Christian women or professing Christian women who read that and they go right on sister <laughs> you're like this is not the love of Christ this is not what Paul is talking about. That's just subjective feelings. So just as the guy can get all pumped up with Christian nationalism and Calvinism and so on, so the, the Christian woman can go in that direction as well. None of it is what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is that deep relationship that's formed when the Christian closes with Christ, when he repents or she repents of his or her sin. And she says, I don't love you as much as I ought but I know that I love you because you have put your spirit in my heart. And I ask now that you would grow me in grace and in your knowledge and never leave me nor forsake me according to your promises. And then begins to live out that life with its ups and its downs of depending upon him and the means of grace that he's given. That's the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. That wonderful interdependence that we have with Christ who is the source of all of our love. And who is that which we need the most? And I pray that you understand what Paul's talking about, that you have an experimental knowledge of what he means when he talks about exceedingly, abundantly, above everything that we can understand when it comes to Jesus, that you felt that. But if not, then stop hesitating. Close with him and know the love of Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I, I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to not desire 
merely the things that can be had by being part of the covenant community, but rather that we would desire the head, the founder, the very foundation of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love him because he first loved us, and that as a result, we would grow in our knowledge of him, grow in our love towards him. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would do this so that you would be glorified in your church now and forevermore. May it be that we who have begun to worship him on earth will do so into eternity and will love to do so more and more every day in our existence. We look forward to seeing him face to face and worshiping him with that assembly that no man can number. We know that day is coming soon, sooner than when we first believed. May that day be complete.